Hey, it's Megan. I hope you're loving this series so far. I wanted to hop on ahead of this week's episode to tell you a little bit more about birth ed and how we can support you on this journey through pregnancy and preparing for the birth of your baby. Before I started birth ed, there seemed to be two kinds of birth prep options available to families. The standard antenatal course pathway, which kind of just listed pain relief interventions and taught you how to change a nappy, but didn't really give you any practical tools on actually navigating the maternity system. Or on the flip side, there was quite a narrow branch of hypnobirthing, which kind of put home vaginal water birth on a pedestal and sometimes left the women that didn't have that kind of birth feeling pretty let down. It was really important to me that we bridged this gap and that is exactly what Birth Ed sets out to do. Our multi-award winning online and in-person courses provide you with an understanding of how birth works and what influence we have over that gives you an understanding of your choices, your options and potential interventions, giving you practical skills in decision making and communication, as well as a toolbox of hypnobirthing techniques to support you to feel calm and confident, whatever kind of birth is right for you and your baby on the day. Hopefully this is something you see reflected in all our free content here on the podcast, over on Instagram, on our Bump Club mailing list and in our Facebook groups. But if you are ready to take the next step in your birth preparation, our online course is just £40 or $49. It's currently being used by thousands of families in over 100 countries around the world. Check out the link in the show note to sign up today. I'm Megan Rossiter from Birth Ed and you are listening to the Birth Ed Podcast. If you're currently at any stage of your parenting journey, from trying to conceive to pregnant to new parents, you are in the right place. Join me for some inspiring, informative and often challenging conversations with the world's leading women's health experts, from midwives to obstetricians, doulas to activists. Find yourself feeling more informed, more confident and ready to take control as you embark upon this journey to parenthood. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, make sure you hit follow or subscribe and it would mean the world to me if you left a rating and review. This means you'll never miss an episode and it really is the best way to make sure this priceless and free information reaches as many families as possible. Ready to meet today's guest? I just want to start this episode with a tiny caveat. I was actually recording this at seven o'clock in the morning, literally after I'd just woken up. um, As Rachel, my guest, lives all the way in Australia. I was then due to rush off on the school run and join a school trip to the farm for the day with my eldest. And I was very excited about having Rachel as a guest. So my excitement kind of comes through in this episode as slight verbal diarrhea, but there's a lot of golden nuggets of advice in there from Rachel. So please forgive my over-enthusiastic rambling um, and I do hope that you enjoy it anyway. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Birth Ed podcast. Today, I am honoured and delighted to be joined by a very special guest, Dr. Rachel Reed. Uh, Dr. Rachel Reed has been a midwife for over 20 years. She is also an author, speaker, teacher, and midwifery consultant. She has practiced midwifery both in the UK, where she is from, and Australia, where she lives right now. 
She holds a PhD in which she explored midwifery practice during physiological birth. She has penned two best-selling books, Why Induction Matters and Reclaiming Childbirth as a Rite of Passage, which is one of my favourite pregnancy and birth books. I would wholeheartedly recommend it. She is the writer behind the fantastic blog that you might have heard of called Midwife Thinking, and she co-hosts the insightful podcast, The Midwife's Cauldron, which if you enjoy this podcast, you will love. So Rachel, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me in that lovely introduction. <laughs> um, so there, you know, there are a million different topics I could have picked your brains on today. Um, lots of research or kind of specific pregnancy conditions that we could have talked about. Um, but I think a helpful thing for everybody to know is that your podcast, The Midwife's Cauldron, does this absolutely brilliantly. So I actually didn't think it was helpful to kind of repeat something that you guys are already talking about on there. So I wanted to focus on something that is like a huge focus of my work. And when I read your most recent book, Reclaiming Childbirth as a Rite of Passage, I was like delighted that this was like a really key thread that ran throughout the book. Um, And that is the idea of developing self-trust when it comes to giving birth. So I very much know what I mean when I talk about self-trust, but I'd love to get your thoughts on this. What do you mean when you talk about self-trust in relation to somebody giving birth? Yeah, so it's really about developing self-trust mostly in the preparation phase, so that's in pregnancy. So it's about instead of focusing on knowing all these external things, it's about focusing internally and connecting to instincts, trusting your body now by that I don't mean trust birth because that's often said isn't it trust birth but you know in reality birth is a bodily process and we hope that it's physiological which means that it is a body working healthily but sometimes it's pathological and that's still natural birth so nature includes pathology and it includes complications so it's not about just trusting that you will have a physiological birth because the chances are you will, but you also might not. So it's about connecting into that self-trust of knowing your body, knowing what it is that you need and trusting that you will know if things are not going well or you'll know what help you need to draw on. So that's kind of what I mean by self-trust is trusting yourself. Yeah, literally. And something that I always like is thinking of yourself almost as like a little being that is literally like inside <laughs> you, like like a whole nother person that instead of putting your trust in kind of external things, it's this little person inside us that we are kind of tuning into and, and relying on. And we we quiet this voice inside ourselves for like most of our lives, don't we? We're constantly yeah. telling children to finish their plate, even though they don't feel hungry or, or whatever it is. Like from a very, very young age, we're kind of almost like conditioned to rely on external expectations or other people's kind of opinions rather than actually what is coming from inside ourselves so why is this important why is self-trust important why wouldn't you just hand yourselves over to the people that see birth day in day out and let them get the baby out safely well you can you don't really need self-trust if you're going to go and birth just you know at home with nobody else around you apart from your family then I guess it's you're going to have a physiological birth because part of the physiological process is actually switching off that neocortex 
when women are in established labor. So that's dampened down. And the reason that happens in a physiological birth is because safety is instinct. So when you are in that state, altered state of consciousness in labor and birth, you are deeply connected to your body and baby and everything is shut from the outside is shut down and you're moving instinctively, you're responding instinctively, you're connected to your baby. But it's very difficult to do that in a setting where you have people doing things to you, you know, assessing you, telling you whether or not your baby's well by using their technology. So it becomes really difficult. And a lot of the things that are routinely done in during labor and birth actually disrupt women's physiology and send birth off into you know, all kinds of directions. Um, that's kind of, unfortunately, most of the practices that are cultural norms in maternity are not evidence-based and they actually work against physiology and work against what the woman's body is trying to do. Do you have any examples of these kind of standard practices that we probably take for granted when we're thinking about our birth experience? Can you give any kind of examples of, of what, what kind of things might disrupt us? Oh, goodness. Where do you start? Even just even just leaving your home and going into a setting with a group of strangers in a place you've probably never been, that is already disrupting physiology. And, and a lot of women, you know, you have to, your nervous system is already on edge in that scenario. So it can take some work to, you know, as midwives, you know, we know that that's going to happen. So we have to work with physiology to help settle the woman in and allow her physiology to kind of kick back in. And um, the clinical assessments that we do, you know, we we do things to women to find things out. We don't ask them, how are you? How is, how is your baby? We straight away stick a monitor on to listen to the baby's heartbeat we're assessing progress according to timelines that make absolutely no sense so we're plotting women's bodies onto graphs and of course to do that we're doing vaginal examinations which don't tell us anything and disrupt physiology so we kind of we're all the way along we're you know the things I was taught to do as a midwife <laughs> when I look back and when I've now looked at the research and evidence is like I was basically taught to meddle with physiology you know yeah. that was what I was taught to do um something that we kind of often do in our classes is I get people to kind of think about what what are these potential disruptors that you're in your head you're picturing when you're pregnant you're picturing them as like completely standard expected that's what everybody does when they have a baby mm. um and when I ask people to think about you know what might trigger adrenaline and labor what might pull you out I talk about feeling like you're underwater when you're in that kind of really deep place in labor like everything goes um sort of quiet you're sort of muffled you're not aware of kind of what's going on around you um and I, I talk about kind of what asking people what would pull you out what would get you to stick your head back above the water um, and often people kind of leap to oh the baby's heart rate's gone down or uh, doctors walked in the room and said you need a cesarean and it's 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 much less than that isn't it it's tiny mm. tiny little moments of again what we kind of consider what we're kind of conditioned to think of is like completely normal and potentially good or helpful and it might sometimes be but often actually can potentially do more harm than good um, and it, I suppose it's really important just to kind of emphasize that all of these things are kind of optional and it's it's for women to kind of decide which parts of it they want to engage in and which parts they don't 
So why don't we trust ourselves? How did we get here? Well, as you said, you know, we're, we're groomed to not trust ourselves just from children onwards. We, we're in a culture now where we tell children to not listen to their instincts. You know, don't do that. Be nice. You need to be nice to that person, even though instinctively the child knows that actually they don't like that person. <laughs> we groom that out of kids. You know, it's just this is probably off topic. But, you know, the other day we had somebody come to the house. And my cats, now they're usually fine with people, just did not like this person. And both of them were out of the house. Like that was an instinct. They just immediately felt uncomfortable and off they went. Now, if that was a child, we'd be saying, no, you need to be nice to that person. And don't. So we don't listen to our instincts. And we, we're taught not to connect to our bodies. We're, you know, we're really disconnected from our bodies and constantly living in our heads and online and so it's no surprise that when a woman comes to into pregnancy that she feels disconnected to her body and she's not used to trusting herself. She's had a lifetime of being told not to trust herself. And then standard antenatal care is centered around external experts checking you and your baby to make sure that you're meeting particular parameters. So that, again, just grooms women to be looking outside of themselves to know what, whether they're well and whether they're progressing. And, you know, by the time they get to labor, that's who they're looking for, you know? And however, even though we say that we all know as midwives, that it's the woman who tells us that she has a feeling something is wrong, who is usually right. You know, you always listen to women. If they're concerned, it's usually because there's a concern. And we know that, you know, when I think about my career, the number of times I have picked up something that's wrong through a clinical assessment that I've done in labor or in pregnancy without the woman having first said, look, I feel that there's something not right here. Or can we check for X or Y because I'm concerned? You know, it's usually the woman who is the person, you know, surprisingly, because the baby's inside, <laughs> who will be able to tell you about the the baby's well-being far better than any of your tests. It, and and it's funny, isn't it? Because this isn't given the weight that it should be in kind of clinical assessment from a kind of um, hospital maternity care perspective. And something that I absolutely loved about your book and particularly the kind of the use of language you talked about something called her story throughout it which is a kind of I suppose play on the word history but it's the the story of kind of what's happened through maternity care in the past through birth in the past how we got to like this moment that we're in today but looking at it through a lens of like femininity and womanhood and the the female body and the female kind of history rather than the kind of obstetric model where when you normally look at kind of birth history that's what we're looking at we're looking at these doctors that did experiments or they did this work or they did that work and all of really kind of medicalizing it and we've actually got a great podcast episode with a male midwife and he talks about um how basically how like the male and female brains differ and particularly kind of in relation to birth and how when something is a kind of a male approach there's very much that that kind of trying to stick everything in a box trying to categorize everything um, and some more of the language that I loved in the book is 
just kind of getting rid of the the first stage of labor the second stage of labor the third stage of labor <laughs> and and again these are things that we just think of when we do antenatal classes when we kind of prepare for birth that we're like oh that's what it is so it's one stage and then magic and then we like suddenly flip into another stage or we're in the latent phase and then we're in established labor and it's it's not that these are boxes constructs that we have created aren't they yeah, and the, those constructs rely on somebody putting their fingers inside a woman to plot her cervix onto a graph to say which stage of the process that she's in. And, you know, that comes out of, you know, our her story or history where, you know, the inst- birth in institutions is fairly recent and it emerged at a time of industry and where we were looking at bodies as machines. And so the knowledge, the obstetric knowledge was developed from conceptualizations of a body as a machine. So, you know, processes that could be made more effective. Um, And, you know, women's bodies historically being seen as broken and not functioning. So now there were machines that didn't function um, and that medicine could fix that. And also pathology, because, you know, the early physicians didn't have access to physiology. They were only able to access pathological birth. So a lot of their learning was looking at basically dead women and babies and and dissecting women and babies and then drawing pictures of that, which became the textbooks. So, you know, a history or her story of birth is steeped in this idea of pathology and that women's bodies don't work, and that they function like machines that are ineffective. So we need to do things to them to make them more effective. And that's reflected in all our language. We talk about mechanisms of birth, stages of labor, you know, it's graphs. We have measurements of baby skulls, categorizations of pelvises. And it's all, it's all just a, you know, a cultural norm, but it's not evidence-based and it isn't aligned with women's experiences and I stopped using the term stages of labor when I was doing my PhD and I made a commitment I'm not going to use that those terms and I managed to not use those terms and I managed to develop and deliver midwifery degrees with midwifery students without any stages of labor apart from to talk about why we weren't using it because you can you know discuss the physiology of birth in depth without talking about stages like machines you know that's and that's kind of the basis of my book is to to do that to put a different framework on the physiology of birth that really centers women not old ideas about how bodies work which are not true yeah and when we focus in on it being this kind of medicalized mechanical sort of process what that completely ignores is it's just looking at the kind of the the biology like what is happening on a kind of scientific perspective and it completely takes away the kind of spiritual experience the the emotional experience and those things are all connected and all influence each other and you know I in my midwifery training I was like shocked at how little I really understood about how the emotions that you're feeling actually influence the like physical unfolding of birth um, and how that your mind plays into birth and and all of this experience and I suppose this is the kind of the whole concept of your book is that it's that that birth is a rite of passage so can you just tell me or tell everybody listening a little bit about what what do you mean when we say like birth as a rite of passage 
Yeah, well, rites of passage theory is anthropology. That's where it kind of came out of. Um, and Van Gennep and Turner really did a lot of research, you know, back in the early 1900s about rites of passage, but they were really looking at other cultures. So, you know, which is easy to see as an outsider, you know, ceremonies of rites of passage from boy to man and, you know, girl to woman. And really it was Sheila Kitzinger and Robbie Davis Floyd who brought it into the kind of childbirth world and started to look at childbirth with this framework. You know, we often get a little bit confused around thinking of rites of passage and practices as ritual because we think that's something outside. So, you know, ritual is often considered to be lighting candles and, you know, smudging and doing like, you know, weird stuff. Um, but by understanding childbirth as a rite of passage, which is just simply a transformation, um, a life transformation, and it's a bodily rite of passage because we have, you know, graduating a degree is a rite of passage. Learning to drive is a rite of passage. And um, it's, it's a, somebody who is going from one status or role and they're transforming into another. And, you know, historically, communities have built or cultures have built ceremony around that in order to message to the person who's going through their rite of passage what is required when they step into their new role. So a girl becoming a woman, there would be a ceremony constructed to transmit to that girl what was required when she became a woman. We don't have ceremonies now in kind of Western modern culture, but those rites of passage are still happening and people are still picking up messages about what it is to be a transform transformed into the next phase. So when it comes to childbirth, that's the rite of passage into mother. And that's the rite of passage into mothering this particular baby. Because a lot of women will go through a number of childbirths during their mother phase of their life. So each one is a transformative process where they learn about themselves and they learn about what society thinks and what the beliefs and value systems are around being mother, being a mother in this culture. But really it's about, for me, it's about harnessing that transformative process for the woman to learn about herself and to step into motherhood, knowing that she is the expert and trusting her instincts and feeling confident and strong to mother her baby. And if that's the end result and what we are wanting for mothers, then we need to consider every action that we do during her rite of passage as a ritual that reflects and transmits to her that message. And, you know, modern maternity doesn't. It actually transmits and reflects almost the opposite message about yeah. women's capacity. And do you think this kind of contributes then to... I think some people will absolutely be listening and going, yes, that's that's it. I came out the other side of birth and that is how I felt. Like I felt like a person transformed. I felt like there's that wonderful, I can't remember what it is, a proverb of some kind where it says, when you give birth, a mother goes to the sky, the woman goes to the sky and comes back as a mother or something, something like that, goes to the stars mm. and comes back as a mother. Um, and some people that will absolutely be resonating with and they'll be going, yes, that that's what I had. Like I had this rite of passage. But a lot of people will be listening and going, I like came out the other side of birth feeling like even more nervous, even more worried, even more concerned about my baby because of 
the way that I was either cared for or my experience of um, pregnancy and birth and the kind of disruptions that were potentially caused along the way. So when the vast majority of people listening to this will be accessing maternity care in the modern maternity system, in particularly now in like a post sort of post COVID world where, you know, in the UK, we've got a midwifery shortage. Um, I don't know what it's like midwife wise kind of in Australia. Like, how do you navigate it? What do you do to to ensure that that rite of passage is protected um, so that hopefully you do come out the other side with that, like really transformative, having had that really transformative experience? Well, there's a difference between transformation and empowerment. Yeah. So the rite, the rite of passage happens regardless of whether you're conscious of it or not. And transformation occurs regardless of how you birth your baby. You know, a woman is transformed you know, with any pregnancy, even a miscarriage, there is a transformation of self that happens during that process. So a woman who has, for example, a medical birth that wasn't something that she chose will be transformed in a different way to a woman who chose to have a medical birth. And that was her rite of passage. And she feels empowered by that because she got the epidural that she really wanted and was listened to. So it's not necessarily about how the birth unfolds. Physiology mirrors the rite of passage in its phases, but a woman who has an elective cesarean also has just as oh, yeah. powerful rite of passage Absolutely. as a woman who has a physiological birth. So if we're looking at transformation, it happens anyway. And unfortunately, you're right, a lot of women come out of that not transformed in an empowering way, not feeling strong and confident, but feeling broken. You know, and some of my research looked at that traumatic birth. And you know, we found that a third of women who had what they called a traumatic birth, two-thirds of them, so a third of women had a traumatic birth, two-thirds of them, it was about what was said and done to them. It wasn't, you know, how their birth ended up happening. It was about how they were treated. So what we're doing during the childbirth rite of passage for a lot of women is not centering them, regardless of how they want their birth to be or how it ends up happening, it's not centering them. So that they come out the other end lost. That is their transformation. Um, and you know, that's why I kind of wrote about how important our words and actions are, because they massively influence how a woman will feel at the end of her rite of passage. So what can somebody start to do, like practically then? in pregnancy or ideally kind of before pregnancy to begin to cultivate self-trust? So that will depend on the individual woman. So I have worked with women who want to satisfy their brains and and I'm a bit like this. I like to know how something works in order to trust that it works. So for those women, it will be learning about how their body works to trust that it works. Other women, it won't be. So it's very much about supporting as midwife, supporting the woman, what is it that you need? How, how can we help you to develop self-trust? Because, you know, for some women, it will be yoga. For other women, it will be meditation. For some women, it'll be none of that at all. You know, <laughs> it'll be talking to friends about their births and, and hearing positive birth stories. So there isn't a prescription. And I've looked after, um, you know, when I first started as a midwife, I wanted to tell women all the things that I thought they needed to know to, you know, so that they'd make the right decisions. And, you know, kind of learned now, actually, there isn't a right decision and women will will navigate their own way through. And I'm kind of just there to share the map, as I call it, with them. 
Um, and I've looked after women who have known absolutely nothing, you know, having home births, who have first babies, who have just said, I don't want to know how anything works. I just trust that it will work. I can remember one woman in particular. And she wouldn't, you know, saying, don't get that pelvis out of your bag. <laughs> I don't even, I want to see it. <laughs> um, and she birthed, you know, amazingly just birthed her baby herself in a birth pool in her front room and she hadn't prepared. So there isn't a prescription around how to prepare. However, I think there is to some extent a prescription about how to support a woman from a midwife or a doula or somebody who's in that childbirth education role. And I call that the sharing the map. So that's not necessarily telling women how their body works unless that's what they want, but it's talking to them honestly about the map, which is the terrain that they're planning to birth in, which will be different for different women, you know, which hospital they're going to, who, what model of care they're in, what does that look like? What are their rights within that? You know, how, how can they exercise their rights within that? I think that's where we can help women to understand how to navigate through the birth terrain that they're choosing. But as, in terms of them cultivating self-trust, you know, it could be, it's really interesting because when I talk to women after their births and I say, oh, what did you learn about yourself? And, you know, it can go as far as the fact that, well, I need to, you know, what I've learned about myself is if I'm in a setting where there are external experts, I will end up doing what they say because that's, because that's actually normal, you know, that's a normal thing to do. And that that's what they've learned about themselves. Um, but I can remember talking to one woman who I'd actually cared for, who was planning a home birth, ended up actually with a medical birth in hospital. Um, she had a cesarean for breach because a, a labor just wouldn't, it wasn't, it wasn't working. So it was, she'd had a big curveball thrown to her um, and then had a cesarean section during labor. So I asked her, you know, what was, um, what was the most empowering thing about your birth experiences? So I'd now looked after her for three babies and um, two of them home births and this one, which was a first baby. And she said, oh, the most empowering experience that I had um, during my three births was my first one when I was in hospital and my baby was breech and, you know, I was in labor and an obstetrician came in and was telling me all these terrible things that could happen and that I needed to, you know, be on the bed and had to have a monitor and had to do all these things. And, you know, we basically, she didn't because we advocated that she said no. And then in the next doctor came in, who was a different, completely different doctor with a new shift and came in and just said to her, how exciting, this is amazing. You're going to birth your baby breach. If you need me, I'll be there. I'll be just outside of the room, but this is great. And in that moment, it wasn't what the two doctors had said. She suddenly realized that people who were outside of it had different perspectives on what was happening and had different things that they wanted her to do. And actually, this was all about her and what she wanted because other people had all kinds of different ideas. And she said that was the most empowering moment for her was having two opposite <laughs> perspectives on her birth. So it wasn't, you know, her amazing home births where I was there and being her <laughs> midwife. Sorry. <laughs> it was her hospital birth. So I think we, you know, we need to really talk to women about what it is that they find transformative and what they learn about themselves, because it might be not what we think. <laughs> yeah, no, that's so true. And 
I I love that story. I think that's absolutely brilliant. And I think that's a really helpful thing for people to know because there is this expectation and we do put our trust in other people all of the time um, because we go, well, that, you know, they've trained for years, they're experts. And yes, like often doctors can be experts in pathology, midwives can be experts in physiology, but there is this missing bit that we sort of nobody really ever considers themselves an expert and you're like well actually you've lived in your body for 20 30 40 years you have felt it every single day you have been with this baby since the moment it was conceived you know what is what you're feeling and your body isn't lying to you if you're having sensations you're having them for a reason um, mm. and they won't always kind of make outward sense in terms of what is what is going on what you're picking up from the outside in terms of putting it in those tick boxes and things. Um, But if you're feeling something, you're feeling something and that's really kind of valid. And the other thing that that a few of the things you've said have actually made me think of that I think is a helpful thing to raise, particularly it's definitely a bit of kind of British culture. I don't know what um, the kind of culture is like in Australia, but we're all very polite. Like we don't like to upset people. We don't like confrontation a lot of the time and so it can sometimes I think sometimes people feel afraid of if they say no to something that is recommended or if they say actually I'd like a bit of time to make that decision or I'd like a bit of time before we do x y or z because I'm feeling this that or the other it can feel confronting and it can feel like you're being rude and you're not listening and you're you're not respecting them I always just want people to be aware of like don't let politeness steal your kind of expertise or steal the birth that you that you could be having just because you want to appease somebody else that you only get to give birth to this baby one time and you won't Mm. regret like advocating for yourself or your baby even though it can feel uncomfortable and it doesn't have to be I think sometimes definitely like a lot of the chat on kind of social media and things is if somebody says oh I don't want to do this and you get lots of comments being oh just say no they don't know it doesn't have to be like a a battle or a, a real kind of confrontation you can say no politely and still feel kind of comfortable in the way that you were behaving if that feels more comfortable to you but you don't have to kind of blindly agree because exactly as your story kind of demonstrated one doctor or one midwife in one moment might be recommending or saying something completely different to the next person to kind of walk in the room yeah absolutely so as we've kind of talked about already, there is like a wealth of information available now in courses, in books, online. Um, There's been something kind of particularly recently with regards to like specific birth positions that I've seen kind of all over the internet. That's like, this is the best birth position because of X, Y, or Z reason. Um, How do we make sure in ourselves that this doesn't become more important than what our own body or baby is telling us or kind of communicating with us how do we make sure that we're able to tune into ourselves rather than somebody saying you know you've got to be upright when you're in labor if you're upright and walking around in labor and it's really uncomfortable and painful and you're really exhausted and you want to lie down I think sometimes people are like oh but they said I've got to be up I've got to be up and you kind of again quiet that instinct or that self that's inside you telling you what to do how do you kind of make sure that you're listening to you and not preconceived ideas I, I think definitely in my first labor I decided that I was going to give birth on all fours because it reduced the chances of tearing and I had gravity on my side so I decided and then I was in labor 
And it was just really, really bloody uncomfortable. I didn't want to be there at all. And fortunately, it was so uncomfortable that I had no choice other than to do what was comfortable. But it can be this kind of seed of doubt in your head of like, oh, I'm supposed to be doing this. I'm supposed to be doing that. Yeah, well, it's just to you are an individual. Your body is not somebody else's body. Your baby is not somebody else's baby. And you and your baby are in this together. And if you're working instinctively, you will get into positions that work for your baby without, you know, that might not make sense from the outside. So it's really reinforcing to women. And that's why I really steer away from any of this prescriptive, you know, yes, there's research on birth positions, but they're they're general in nature. You know, they're kind of, if we look at the pelvis, go, oh yeah, well, it works kind of best in this position. Well, yeah, it does. But for that individual woman, it might not because of her pelvis and her baby and what's going on for her. And we can't, as outsiders, we can't see that. And the woman doesn't know until she's in labor how her baby's going to make their way through her pelvis. And I have seen some really weird birth positions. And, you know, this was after I'd stopped advocating for birth positions when I realized that actually women knew what they were doing if I just shut up. Um, I saw some amazing birth positions that made no sense from the outside. And then once the baby was born, it was like, oh, I wonder if, you know, this was happening. You know, yeah. So one woman, I've, I've told this story before, one that really sticks in my mind is a woman birthing practically standing on her head you know a head on the on the ground and a bottom in the air and the baby was going uphill and it was a third baby so like it was taking ages because the baby was literally going uphill and sliding back down and then once this baby was born it came the baby came out with his placenta and I think his placenta had actually been really low and her doing that had taken the pressure off the placenta she didn't consciously do it her body just knew to do it and I've seen that so many incidences of women moving their bodies you know releasing shoulder distortion themselves without you doing anything because they can feel the baby so just reassuring women women and anybody who's listening to this you have those instincts you are the expert on the birth position that you need to be in. Just listen to your body if something's uncomfortable move you know if that position doesn't feel good, change position <laughs> there isn't a there isn't a perfect position or a correct way to birth your baby yeah uh, you're interesting your uphill story is very similar to my first birth I had an induction um and was fortunately alone at this point on the antenatal ward um and again like knew I should be moving which would kind of go up and down the stairs the only position that was comfortable was laying on my back in the bed with my legs and my bum propped up on the kind of um top bit of the the back of the bed um almost in a kind of like semi shoulder stand and I'm so glad that I was on my own at this point because I know had somebody walked in they'd have been like oh get off the bed go for a walk and this is just it was it was just the only place I could find a comfortable position um and in hindsight, I now look back and I know that it was the baby tipping himself back out of the pelvis so that he could turn. And then once I was out of that position, he was born very, very shortly after I'd then kind of stood up again. Um, but yeah, on paper, there's absolutely nothing in inverted commas that makes sense about wanting to stick your bum up in the air and be in a shoulder stand when you're mm. in labour. It just it isn't it doesn't fit what the textbooks say. Um, and so 
one thing that I always say when I'm kind of working with clients antenatally, um, we sort of most of the people that I kind of work with do have a real interesting kind of what are the hormones doing? What is your body doing? Um, so we we talk through all of this. And then I get to the end and I basically say, now forget everything I've told you and go and have a baby because it's not, it's all helpful. It's all interesting. It's nice to kind of know if you're interested in it, but ultimately it should never trump what your body and what yourself and what your baby are saying to you in labor. So take it, learn it, and then basically forget it and just, just trust what your body is telling you in that moment, whether it's telling you that everything is good or that something's not quite right. Um, so. I think something that is often kind of overlooked when we we certainly tend to think of pregnancy as a thing, birth as a thing, and then like the postnatal period or parenting as a thing. And we very rarely link the, the three together um, as a kind of continuum where one thing influences the next, which influences the next, you know, how how often do we really hear people talk about how your birth experience impacts your breastfeeding experience or the the kind of potential disruptions that birth might cause for breastfeeding either for baby or for mum or whatever um and so what are the kind of longer term implications in your your opinion of kind of self-trust as we move into the kind of postnatal parenting period if we've been able to kind of cultivate self-trust in pregnancy and feel it in birth how does that then play out into like the rest of our the, the kind of new season of our lives as mothers well ideally if if we have as care providers enacted actions and words around the woman that reinforce her self-trust and she's able to cultivate self-trust and then she births connected to her instincts and trusting herself to make decisions that she needs to make then that will carry forward into mothering you know she's not going to reach it just it amazes me that we spend our antenatal care reinforcing ourselves as external experts and encouraging women to reach outside of themselves for all the information in birth, we do all the things to women and reinforce the fact that we know if you're progressing, we know if your baby's well. And then once the baby's born, we expect them to just go off and know what they're doing. And then we kind of go, oh, God, she like she doesn't even know how to breastfeed. Or she keeps asking for help about this thing. Or she's worried about this thing with the baby. It's like, well, she stepped into motherhood, not trusting herself to mother. And of course, she's going to seek external reassurance because we've groomed her to do that all the way through. So if we haven't done that and we've reinforced the woman as as central and her expertise is the dominant one when it comes to her body and her baby, she is the expert, then she'll step into mothering like that. And of course, it doesn't mean she'll not have issues and problems. Not many of us manage to do that, particularly the early parenting without lots of problems propping up and lots of challenges. The difference is that she's going to seek knowledge about her baby and herself from herself. And she's going, yeah, that doesn't mean she's not going to seek external help, but she's going to trust her instincts to know if this baby has a problem that needs to seek external help, you know, or and trust herself that she can settle a baby when the baby's unhappy or crying and needing. She'll know when the baby needs to feed, that she won't need to ha- read a book and have charts about how often she's feeding her baby, that she'll follow the baby because she's trusting the baby as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's just like a really valuable thing to be able to, a really valuable place to be able to start 
parenthood from um with that because it is like you're in charge of an entire human being and it does feel like you know particularly in the in late pregnancy you've been seen like pretty much every week at the, the very kind of final weeks of pregnancy um and then come between five and ten days after the birth usually it's like okay bye see you later like go and look after this child that is now yours and you're basically in charge of shaping them as an entire human and the responsibility can feel kind of super weighty um the final thing that I suppose plays into to all of this is just how sort of secret pregnancy, birth and like the early parenthood bit is now in kind of the modern world. Like another question that I always ask when we're kind of doing, um, we talk about infant feeding on our like preparation for the postnatal bit. And I always say to people, how were you fed as a baby? Less than 50% of people even know. Like they have never even been told or asked or wondered or considered, how was I fed as a baby? What was my parent, what was my mum's breastfeeding journey like? What was my mum's bottle feeding journey like? What was my birth like? And some people are told, I certainly know some friends that have basically been told their whole lives that their birth was absolutely awful. And this is the only message that they've ever received about birth is that their birth was awful and and almost like they hold some responsibility for this birth being awful. And so it's either not talked about, we don't often hear much about our own birth experience or our own experience of being kind of a very newborn baby um, and even really like amongst friends amongst kind of colleagues the kind of slightly wider society we don't talk in depth about what birth feels like we often when we're hearing birth stories we go oh and then I was five centimeters dilated when I got to the hospital and then I like I don't know, then I got an epidural and then it was four hours before I was 10 centimetres dilated. And again, the stories that we're telling have this focus on the kind of external measurements rather than I was in labour and my back was in so much pain and actually a hot water bottle on my back was really helpful and soothing. Um, And that's the kind of bit that's missing from conversations around birth. And something that I absolutely love in your book is that you talk about the the science the what is going on from a kind of scientific perspective the biology what's going on inside the body and then there's this kind of story that runs through which is like a a woman's birth story so while x y or z is going on inside her body what is she actually experiencing what does it feel like for her to be having a contraction or to be feeling the kind of expulsive pushing stage of labor like what those are the bits I think that are missing um from a kind of birth preparation and it's it's so secret that we're going into birth we're going into parenthood most people have never seen a baby breastfeed until they have their own baby potentially kind of on their chest sort of like flailing their little face around trying to attach to the breast and it is it any wonder that we don't feel prepared for birth or feel prepared for that early parenting bit when really nobody talks about it (laughs) no and and it has always been so and that's one of the reasons I wrote the the first chapter in the book is to understand what's happening now we kind of need to look back at what used to happen so you know historically birth has always been to some extent, secret in that it happened behind closed doors or, you know, away from the public view and was women's business. And as a collective culture of women at birth, 
we would have attended lots of births. So as a girl, you would have, you know, the people who attended births were the woman's female relatives and friends. And sometimes a midwife would be there if, if the woman had one and could afford one. But the main birth support were the community, the women in the community. And as women in a community, you would have attended numerous births. As a little girl, you would have been sat at a birth, listening to the noises, smelling the smells, hearing the stories, watching the birth and the breastfeeding. So it would have just been a normal part of life that you would have understood and had experience of by the time you did it. And you're right now, we're kind of the only access we have to that is media now really when very few of us have attended a birth or you know particularly more than one before we do it ourselves we don't see a real one um, and we're reclaiming that a little bit through social media and you know access to movies of birth and that's relatively new in terms of outside the system births so we're reclaiming it a little bit in that in out now as a woman who's pregnant you can go on and watch lots of women giving birth and hear the sounds and read their birth stories. And that's great. But another thing that's happening is we're like with everything on social media, we're, we're curating it. You know, we're, we're editing the birth movies to show the bits that we want to, because that's what we do with everything. And that's, that's normal human behavior. So we're still not really coming to birth, being experienced or knowing it. No. And so it's, it's it's asking I always think asking those stories and when somebody's telling you a story just get them to pause and just ask them to like just go a bit deeper like what did it fit but what did that feel like what were you scared were you joyful <laughs> did it really hurt like because we otherwise we just get the oh it really hurt and then a baby came out and then it was amazing and like and and that's kind of the the the, the most of most people's stories um and every everybody likes to talk about their birth like whether it was good whether it was bad like there's always something that you can take from birth experience so if somebody is happy to share which often people are um then just ask and kind of keep digging and and keep asking those those questions when I did my research it was a, a collected birth stories and what was interesting was because this was I was just looking at physiological birth because I just wanted to know what midwives did when basically they didn't need to do anything because it was physiology. Um, but a lot of the women said, oh, well, I haven't really got a birth story. And I realized that a lot of women who had, you know, straightforward physiological births where there hasn't been any dramas in quotes and complications and you know, ha having to be saved, they feel like they don't have a story. They almost all, they feel guilty about sharing a story that was, you know, where they had an amazing birth experience because they feel that other women didn't have that. You know, I don't want to share that because that might make somebody feel bad because yeah. my experience was amazing. You know, this, yeah. so I think women are still shy about telling birth stories that are empowering experiences and yet, you know, very happy to share emergencies and dramas because you know, that's seen as a story. That's a proper yeah. story is where you rushed into emergency and, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's measurements and there's little like checkpoints mm. along the way to kind of highlight. Um, my husband's version of our second birth is absolutely hilarious. It takes him about 10 seconds to say, he's like, oh yeah, well, her waters broke and then she went into labor and then the baby came out in the lounge. 
and and that's basically <laughs> his version of the story. Um, so I, I totally get that feeling like there isn't really like much to say, but but deep there is. There's like there's feeling mm. there, there's transformation there. Um, so we're kind of running out of time. So the very last question that I ask people on the podcast is if you could gift a pregnant or birthing woman one thing, what would you give? Oh, well, I'm going to have to say self-trust on top of all of that. <laughs> I guess I would just, I would really like women to step into the childbirth rite of passage and motherhood, knowing that they are the experts and they already have the power and to trust themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And we've just explained why. Thank you so much. So, so helpful. Um, I'm going to ask you if people want to kind of find you um, where they can look. But before I do, I just want to kind of personally recommend both of your books. So I'll put the details to purchase them and all of kind of Rachel's links and things in the show notes of this podcast. So two books, Why Induction Matters, and the one we've talked a lot about, Reclaiming Childbirth as a Rite of Passage. Um, I also wanted to just kind of doubly recommend if people are after free resources um Rachel's blog midwife thinking is just like it just get hits the nail on the head all the time and I don't know I was wondering when I was thinking about this I don't know if you can describe blog posts as seminal but if you can then there are kind of two particular blog posts that are probably like two of my like most shared resources one is called the curse of meconium stained lycor um and one is called big babies the risk of care provider fear and I will put links to both of them in in the notes so that you can kind of read them just offering kind of slightly different perspectives than the ones that we might be kind of most familiar with um and finally the midwives cauldron podcast my two favorite episodes I think probably go in line with everybody's two favorite episodes are the kind of gestational diabetes ones about pac-man which is again just like explained in a way when you've got a 15 minute midwife appointment you don't get two hours worth of conversation about what that what that potentially looks like for you but on the podcast you do so you can certainly find Rachel in all of those places where else can people find you if they would like to follow or learn more oh I guess Rachel Reed website um Rachel Reed yeah and midwife thinking is on Facebook and Instagram yeah I'm there as midwife thinking amazing thank you so much for joining me that was incredibly insightful and very very helpful I am sure thank you thank you for having me Thanks for listening to the Birth Ed podcast. Don't forget to follow or subscribe and please rate and review so these important conversations about pregnancy, birth and parenthood can reach as many families as possible. If you're currently pregnant and feeling ready to deepen your knowledge of how birth works, what your choices are, how you might navigate the maternity system and prepare for a positive birth experience, make sure you're following us on Instagram at birth underscore ed. And it might be time to sign up for our multi-award winning antenatal and hypnobirthing course. From as little as £40, the course is being used by thousands of families in over 100 countries worldwide. There's a link to sign up in the show notes and see you next week.